chapter 2, we're going to continue in our study here in the second epistle of Paul to Timothy. <clears throat> Begin in chapter 2, we have concluded our study of chapter 1 and we'll be going back and, and looking at that, the end of that chapter a little bit to tie in chapter 2. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And we're going to stop there. I really debated on rather to kind of tie all of that in with uh, verses 3 through 7 and, and make it all the way down to verse 7, but we're going to take a small passage this morning and really try to unpack it a little bit. I think there's some really important things here uh, for us to look at and to consider in just these two verses. Um, the title of the message is Generational Truth. Generational Truth. And I hope even just by the title, that'll get your mind working just a little bit. Um, about the importance of this passage and, and what it's really talking about to us, uh, which is that uh, Paul here is encouraging Timothy again in verse 1 to be strong, and then in verse 2 he begins to talk to him about the task that is ahead of him. He's alluded to it in chapter 1, but it was really more of kind of preparing him and saying here's the things that you need to do and here's the enemies that you might see and you're also going to have some allies, and then he gets to verse 2, and he says, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That sounds like a really simple verse, right? It sounds, well, he's just saying, the things that, that I, Paul, have taught you, Timothy, I want you to tell other people so they can tell other people. That sounds really simple. That's a pretty big task. It's a, it's a pretty big task. So, um, and it's a very, very, very important task. Um, I'll never forget um, Rebecca's granddaddy, um, the one that we just prayed for who's sick in, in um, the hospital right now. He um, got up in, in front of a group of people, and, and his message was the truth can be lost in one generation. And that's absolutely true. Um, and so it's very important for us to understand what that the apostle is teaching here through his letter to Timothy for us and how we must view it now because, and I'll go ahead and spoil the whole sermon, it's different now than it was for Timothy, okay? So we have to really, this is one of those passages where we have to look at it and then we have to apply it and we have to say, okay, in, in my time, in my day, what is it? Um, so we'll get into that in just a minute. But our first point is, he says, thou therefore be strong. So this really reiterates a lot of what we talked about in chapter one, namely the fact that uh, some men have turned away from Paul, and they've begun to teach a gospel different than the gospel that Paul was preaching and teaching. So in the world today, are there false gospels and false doctrine and false things that are being taught? Absolutely, there are. There's no doubt about it. So when I said just a minute ago, sounds real simple. Hey, you just take the things that the apostles taught, and you pass them on to another generation. They'll pass them on to another generation. It sounds real simple. It's not that simple. So... 
there are enemies. There are those who claim to be teaching the truth, and they're not teaching the truth. So he says you're going to have to be strong. Uh, there are enemies. Uh, you go back uh, into verse 15, and he describes these two men here. Well, first he says, Thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Now, I don't know if that was true or if that's him just saying, Hey, there's a, there's a big extent to which people have turned away from the true gospel. But that sounds pretty bad. And then he mentions these two, two men in particular, and he said, You know, they... Um, they have really caused a lot of damage. So these were teachers. These were men who were teaching, but they were not teaching the gospel that Paul had taught. So they had perverted the gospel in some way. We don't know in this case exactly what that was, but they had, they had changed the gospel that Paul had taught. But then he gives a little bit of good news. I can't pass that um, to you without at least giving you the good news too. He also says that Onesiphorus was was one who truly, he was one of these that we're going to read about in verse 2, that's a faithful man that had taken the gospel correctly and he was passing it on to others and he refreshed Paul and he did not turn away from Paul or Paul's teaching and Paul's gospel. So um, he says, uh, these men have turned away from Paul. They began to teach a gospel different then Paul was preaching and teaching, and he's telling Timothy, you cannot be indifferent in this fight. You cannot be ruled by fear or timidity. That's what the whole chapter 1, pretty much, the whole premise of that chapter 1 is telling Timothy, you cannot sit on the sideline on these issues. You cannot be indifferent. You're going to have to, and excuse the phrase, but you're going to have to man up. <laughs> you're going to have to understand that you cannot have a spirit of fear and timidity, and I know that's your personality, Timothy, but you're going to have to overcome that. And there's strength and grace for that, and he, so he reiterates that. I think it's interesting how he, he talks about that a lot in chapter 1. Then he tells him, okay, there's all these enemies. So there are all these enemies. So right before he gives him the task, he says, let me remind you one more time. Thou therefore, my son, therefore, go back and see what it's there for. Uh, because of all of this, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So he says, you're going to have to be strong, but guess what? There's grace. And there's grace for that. In Christ Jesus, you'll find grace for the task. So you cannot be indifferent in the fight, but the good news is that Paul does not tell Timothy that he must find it in himself to fight this battle or, or that um, it's up to him to, to find a way to have the strength or you know, pull himself up by his own bootstraps, but he says that there's grace in Jesus Christ and his grace is sufficient. So God does not call us to a task and then neglect to give us what is needed to obey him. Did you know that? God does not call us to a task and not give us grace necessary to do what is needed to obey him. Now, does that mean we always obey him? No, it doesn't. Uh, sometimes we don't utilize that grace in our life but his grace is sufficient for the task so one little quick side note before we move on from this and this is not a huge deal but i think it's worth mentioning several people have have questioned this so uh there in the in that text in in the first verse he says thou therefore my son be strong in the grace that is with thee so paul calls timothy my son uh, while it's not really a huge issue i do think it's worth mentioning you know, um, Jesus in Matthew 23, 6 through 12, he says, don't be called rabbi, don't be called father, 
Don't be called master. Don't be called these things now. Does that mean that you can't call your father father? When Jesus said, call no man father, does that mean that we can't call anybody father on the earth? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But, but this is one of those issues that we're going to talk about today where we have to read the Bible and interpret what was the meaning of that text. So what was Jesus warning against to them in that passage when he said, don't be called rabbi, don't be called father, don't be called master. He was saying you've got to have humility. And there's, there's one father and he's in heaven. So be careful about that issue. So while it's not wrong um, maybe to call someone who is a spiritual mentor father or a mentee son, um, I personally avoid it. I just don't think it's probably good. Um, I definitely have, when I worked in the Delta, I had this assistant principal and he would come by my room and he would stick his head in and say, hey, Rev, because he knew I was a pastor. Well, I, I told him two or three times, and he just it took him forever to break the habit. But I said, please don't call me reverend. <laughs> There's one reverend, and it's not me. You can call me Brother Andy. You can say pastor. You can say elder. You can say any of those other biblical terms, but please don't call me reverend. So I think it's just an issue we've got to be careful about and, and make sure that our, our spirit is right on it. It's not the legality, the, being legalist about it, but it's our spirit. If we want to be humble men, um, that's just something that we should, I think that's the meaning of the passage there in Matthew 23 that Jesus is addressing. So he says, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I guess the last thing I would say on that is, yes, Paul does call Timothy son, but he's also an apostle, and that's a pretty big deal. So that's a little bit different. Um, I don't claim to be an apostle, and that's going to be important in just a minute. So we're going to move on to verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me... Among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So we're going to look at this from a big picture standpoint today. We're not going to just unpack this text and just explain it, but we're going to see it in its bigger context about what is the meaning of this passage. So the meaning of this passage is Paul is telling Timothy that there is truth and that that truth was taught by Paul. And that what Timothy's job is, is to take that truth and pass it on to other men who can then pass it on to other men. I think we can all agree on that. That's clearly what the passage is saying. It's about truth. So our second point is the existence of absolute truth. The existence of absolute truth. What we believe is that there is a, a thing that is called absolute truth. There is a right and a wrong. There is a black and a white. There is not gray. There is no such thing as gray. There is to us, but in reality, there is only absolute truth. Uh, Francis Schaeffer called it true truth. <laughs> now, that's interesting, isn't it? He said, he said there's this thing called absolute truth, and it's true truth. So uh, not just truth for you or truth for me, but an absolute truth, whether you or I believe it or not. I'm not going to name the name of this person because I don't think they intended it this way, but there was a, a pastor that I used to, um, you know, be around a lot, and he always said, he had this saying, well, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. So I eventually went to him, and I said, you know what? That's really not right. He said, what? I said, God said it, that settles it. That's <laughs> period. I mean, that is all there is to it. It is not, whether I believe it or not, doesn't make it true or false. Did you know that? There is a truth that is absolute that whether I believe or not, it is still the truth. And what we hope 
is that we can study the scriptures and come to the closest that we possibly can to what the scriptures say is the truth. I'm getting ahead of myself there because that's where we're headed, is that we're going to have a source of that truth as well. So, um, like we said, challenging the church and challenging the culture to get as close as we can to absolute truth. And, And relativism is the enemy of that. And I would say... In the past 25 years, probably, that has become a much bigger problem than it ever has been in the past. Um, Modern thought, postmodernism in our culture has really brought that philosophy of a relativistic view of truth. In other words, there are multiple truths, and it just depends on your perspective. Some people would say where you're born and, and how you're raised, it actually affects what is true to you and what is not true to you. Well, I hate to tell you this. If you're a country boy, truth is truth. If you grew up in Southeast Asia, the same truth is true. If you grew up in a Muslim home, there is a truth that is absolutely true, and it doesn't matter what you were taught as you were brought up. It's still there's one truth, and everything else is false. No matter how you're raised, what your background is, all of those things, um, uh, that doesn't matter. So, in 1 Timothy uh, 3.15, let's turn there, turn back in your Bible to 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So this charge that Paul is giving to Timothy is extremely important for the church because one of the key aspects of what the church is are are guardians of truth. We are to stand on and uphold those things that are most surely true, as close as we possibly can. So we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. And when I say we, I mean the church, not the ministry. The ministry's job, I think, is to jump in here and dig, in, but the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church itself is that which protects the truth. The church of God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. The support and the protector of the truth in the world is the church. Now, this is a side note a little bit, but I can't help it. I'm, I'm going to take it for just a minute. If our culture has gotten so far off track What does that say about the church? I mean, that's a hard question, but I'm going to ask it because I'm pointing the finger at myself and and all of us. If the culture gets so far off track as it has now, what does that say about the church? That means that the church is not really doing a good job of speaking into the culture, right? Um, That means that the culture has turned away from the church because if if some of the things that are now called um, truth and okay and right and yet we know we're completely anti-biblical, then we ought to be speaking up on those issues. And that's one reason why the church is generally unpopular with the world, okay? The church is never going to be the friend of the world. Some people try to do that. Um, you know, some of these big mega churches, those things are planned. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but, I mean, they're, they're planned out. They, they have structure, and they have plans, and they have strategies that they use to try to make people comfortable and bring them in. And, and a lot of times that is through compromise. It is 
well, we're, we're not going to address this or we're going we're gonna to stay quiet on this because, you know, that might drive people away. And we want to be, the buzzword about 10 years ago was we want to be seeker sensitive. We want to we be sensitive to those who are seeking, so we're not going to really maybe focus on certain things. But that's not the job of the church is to be seeker sensitive. The job of the church is to stand on the truth, whether it brings people in or it turns them away. And that's hard. That's really hard because we want to see people turn to the truth, but not all will. And that's not, on, that's not our job. Um, we can't born people again to get them to understand truth. The church doesn't have that power. Ministers don't have that power. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to change someone's heart so that they can then see, understand, and believe biblical truth. So what this really brings us to is the universe itself, creation itself, is not a democracy. It is an absolute monarchy. Did you know that? God rules overall. He is sovereign. That is the key to all of our doctrine and all of our practice. It, it, is, it overrules all other things. It is, it is the key to everything is that God is sovereign over all things in the universe. So the universe is not a democracy. I love the way... Um, this one pastor worded it. He said, the universe is not a democracy. It's actually terribly old-fashioned because it's an absolute monarchy. And it means that God rules and that we don't have a vote and you don't get to decide what's right and wrong or what's true or false. You don't get to make judgments on that. God alone says what is right and wrong and what is truth. And we submit to it. It is, it is really that simple. So, so we as the church have this great task and that is what... Paul is writing to Timothy about here when he says, and the things that thou hast heard of me. That phrase is what we're talking about, absolute truth. The truth of God that Paul had taught to Timothy, he wanted Timothy then to pass on to others. And that truth is absolute. So the hard part about that is the Bible says that unless the Holy Spirit intervenes, our hearts and our nature will always turn in an opposite direction to that which God has declared. Did you know that? That's the hard part. That's the part that a lot of people don't want to understand and don't want to um, submit to and to admit to, is that apart from the grace of God working in our lives and, and the Holy Spirit coming in and changing our heart and our will, we will naturally be in opposition then to the truth that God has declared. That is our natural state. Those things that are truly wise, we will turn away from in our natural state. Now, does that mean that every decision that a reprobate makes is completely, it doesn't, but, but the, the bent of their whole life will be away from those things. That, that, that is, in their natural state, they will not turn to the truth. So, it, and you've heard me recently even say this out of the pulpit, it, and it's just a, a story that um, just resonates with me, so I use it a lot, but... Um, that it's it's really unpopular truth for self-sufficient people people who are self-exalting people who are self-determining human beings and i think it's harder for americans i mean the spirit of america is self-determination and freedom and democracy and all of those things so i think it's even harder sometimes for us to understand but the way c.s lewis said it was this he said we put god in the dock and man in the seat of the judge so that is not the way that it works God is the judge, and we are in the dock. And yet, 
we want to present even the gospel sometimes as though, well, we present the gospel and then people make a judgment on it. And if they choose it, if they deem it worthy, then they're saved. And if they deem it unworthy, then they are damned. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is the judge and that we are in the dock. God is the one who does the judging, not us. So that in and of itself shows us the trouble that we have with absolute truth. So now, third point. First, we saw uh, in, our, in our first point uh, where he said, Thou therefore be strong. So he's telling Timothy to be strong. And then uh, our second point was the existence of absolute truth. And then number three is, what is the source then of this absolute truth? And this is why I told you, and I saw some funny faces when I said it, that we have to really be careful here and unpack this because it's different for us than it was for Timothy. Okay? It's different. And I think I'm going to be able to show you that. So in our text, Paul says to Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So what is the source of this absolute truth that the church is, is bound to protect and to uphold and to pass on to others. What is the source of that? Well, Paul, as an apostle, spoke with verified authority. Did you know that? Because he was an apostle, he spoke with authority. And he, and he had authority to speak and, and to say, Timothy, this is the truth. And it's verified because of my apostleship. Peter was an apostle. Peter could speak with authority. Now, because he speaks with authority, he tells Timothy that he should take the truth that Paul has taught and spoken to him by apostolic authority and teach it to other faithful men who will then teach that same truth to other faithful men. Now, this is a really important update. There are no apostles alive right now and teaching today. In case you didn't know that, there are no apostles that are living today. So what then is the source for our truth? Because to Timothy, it was... Listen to Paul. Paul has authority. What he speaks is truth. Then you pass it on to other men. But so we can't take that literally. Okay? If we do, we're going to be in really big trouble. Okay? If we say whatever preachers in 1950 taught, you just say that again. And, and then that next generation, then you just make sure that whatever that generation says, you say that again. And then you say whatever the next. I'm telling you, if we do that, we're in trouble. And you know why? Because those are fallible men. And it's not, that's not putting a, you know, that's not besmirching our elders and those that have gone before us. Um, it is, that is not saying that they are teaching a bunch of heresy. It's not. But we better be focused on the source of absolute truth, which for Timothy was Paul. For us, though, it's the Holy Scriptures and only the Holy Scriptures. So we will go to the Bible itself to prove that in just a minute to show that, that the Bible claims that of itself. Uh, but we must be careful to understand that our source of truth is the Bible. We go to the Bible itself uh, and, and show, and we believe in inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, completeness of the scriptures, of the holy scriptures of God. We don't believe that this is a collection of men's thoughts. We don't believe that this is a collection of men's interpretation of God's word. We believe it is actually the words of God spoken through men. That's a big difference, y'all. It's a big difference. And that itself is even under attack, believe it or not, not among other religions or atheists. Guess where that's under attack now? In Christianity itself. There are men who are teaching things like, 
well, you know, the Bible itself, maybe it's not completely inerrant. Maybe there is bias by the writers. You know, maybe there's, and, and they're doing that because there are preconceived things that they want to teach and preach and, and be able to allow that they're not able to do so because the Bible speaks against it. So because of that, they, or it's the Bible silent and they want it to speak on it and it doesn't. So they, they, because of that, they then begin to attack the inerrancy and the sufficiency and the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Now, when we do that, we've gotten way off course. And, and now here's the hard part, though. Uh, there is no one who can, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I better not do that yet. Let's, let's take one step at a time. So let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about itself. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 3. I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 3, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is a really important text. If you haven't memorized that one, that's a really good one to memorize because anywhere else you go in the Bible to prove any other doctrine or any other practice or any other thing that you do hinges on that verse because that verse says that the Bible is true and that it's sufficient and it addresses everything we need to address. I think that's the part that maybe um, a lot of people are really challenging now is the actual sufficiency of Scripture. That the, what we have in the Bible is sufficient. It's everything that we need to know. God didn't leave anything out. He didn't forget to put something in it. Everything we need to know to function in the church and in our own personal individual lives is complete and sufficient in the Scriptures for us to know what we need to do as Christians and how we need to live our lives. So, so very important text there. But we go back to um, our text, and we said it's different for us than it is others. So I want to be really crystal clear about this. Um, Brother Nathan, Brother Jeff, myself, any other minister that we've had here um, at our meetings or any other time, those men did not hear directly from an apostle, okay? <laughs> We're... We're not that old. <laughs> Some of them may seem pretty old, but they're not that old. So we didn't hear directly from an apostle. So what our job is, is to take this book, this text, and to explain the meaning to you. And that is, that's a difficult task. It is. It's, it's a very difficult task. And it takes a lot of study and a lot of prayer and a lot of leadership of the Holy Spirit for us to do that. And we don't do that perfectly, uh, meaning that um, we are fallible men and it's possible for us to say things which may not be true. So you're, you, as uh, a, a member of the church, it's your responsibility to, to be studying with us and studying along with us and reading the Bible yourself and listening to what we say and making sure it's thus saith the word of God. That's an important thing, and that's what we want you to do. We unpack, we expound, we explain, and we teach the principles and the precepts of the Holy Scripture and nothing more and nothing less because we have no authority outside of the Word of God. Okay? I'm going to repeat that. We have no authority outside of the Word of God. 
We can have opinions. <laughs> and we do <laughs> a lot of times. But our authority comes only when we unpack, expound, explain, and teach and preach the principles and precepts of the Holy Scripture. There is no new revelation. So on any topic, any question, any practice, any doctrine, we must be obedient to the Scriptures as our only source of absolute truth, that absolute truth that we talked about. Now, I'm going to take a, a break, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read a little bit, and, and I know sometimes that's tedious, but I think it's really important. Um, so, but before I do that, I want, I want to mention this. So when I say that our, our, the Bible itself is our only source of absolute truth, what about then our articles of faith? What about the 1689 London Confession of Faith? What about the writings of Primitive Baptist elders of the past? What about John Gill's commentary? What about all those things? So are those things not sources of truth? Well, the answer is that while all those things are useful and certainly can contain a great measure of truth, they are not divinely inspired and cannot be treated as though they are divinely inspired. There is only one thing that is divinely inspired, and that is the Bible itself. So we must compare them to the only source of truth and our only rule of faith and practice, which is in our um, articles of faith. You know, we say in our articles of faith, there's only one rule of faith and practice, and that's the Bible. So we're writing these things down so you know where we stand. But everything that we believe comes from the Bible. We're, we're honest and upfront about that. So I'll just give you an example. So 1689 London Confession of Faith, I believe personally, is a good um, organized way of telling what the Bible teaches. So I do believe that it's truth. And that, but I believe that because I take it back to the Bible and I compare it to the Bible. So there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with writing those things down. It's good that we have an articles of faith so that we can tell other people these are the things that we believe. But those things must come from the Bible itself. So, so, but then I also mentioned John Gill. I did that on purpose so I could use that as an example. There's a lot of good there, but I'm going to tell you, I also believe there's some error there, and we have to be careful. So John Gill, in his commentary, he writes in multiple places, gospel regeneration, which we do not believe. And that's just one. I mean, I could name you several other things that he teaches in that that I don't believe is biblical. So we compare what he says to the Bible, and we don't just read it and say, well, John Gill said it, so it must be true. We compare it to the Bible, and then we use that um, as our source of truth. So the same is true of the traditions of the church or the teaching of our elders. We must ensure that all of those things are supported by the Scripture. Now, saying that, I want to read to you the 1689 London Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 1. This is on the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. So I'm going to pause there. What he's saying here is that the scriptures are sufficient, certain, infallible, all of those things. Um, but even, even if men didn't have access to the scriptures, the light of nature itself proves that there's a God. So he's it's really talking about Romans 1 here, that men are without excuse. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation, regeneration and conversion. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and declare that his will 
unto his church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing. In other words, all of that truth that God established was written down in, in written language, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people, now being completed. That last phrase is why it's so important about our text today. So at one point, God used the apostles as his source of truth to teach the people. That's completed. That's been wrapped up. We have the canon of Scripture now. And now that we have that, that is our source of truth. <clears throat> so we're going to look at a few scriptures. We've already looked at 2 Timothy 3.15. Turn to Isaiah 8, chapter 20. And these are the ones that are listed in the, the confession itself. So if you wanted to go back, there's, I'm actually going to just hit a few. There's about 15 there. We're just going to look at a few. Isaiah 8.20 in the Old Testament. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So, if someone were to come here and preach, I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head, that election is a false doctrine. Election is a false doctrine. Then what we would say, there's no light in that man because he has spoken something that is not according to the word of God. If it's not according to the word and, and he's preaching a different gospel, then they're in error. So we are, our rule is not what they teach, but our rule is the scripture itself. Uh, Ephesians 2.20, we don't have to turn to that one. You know that one. That talks about the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, that's the foundation of the church. Uh, let's do turn to Romans chapter 1. I think that one's really important. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So, that he put that in there to about the part that I told you uh, in the first part of this passage on on uh, the Holy Scriptures, talking about the light of nature. There's limits to the light of nature. Is basically what that's teaching us. The light of nature can prove to us that there's a God, but the light of nature is not going to teach you all truth about God and all things that the Scriptures can teach us. So the Scriptures are extremely important because of that very fact. Nature itself tells us there's a God, and yet. We learn more about who God is and, and his character and all the things that he's done um, in the history of redemption through the scriptures. Now, there's several others there. Um, if you have time, go look at those. Uh, we're going to move on from that, but it's, it's a great thing. It'd be a great thing for you to just go get a copy of the 1689 line of confession of faith. I just read you paragraph one. There's ten paragraphs on the Holy Scriptures because it's a really important topic. So it'd be a good thing to go and review when you have a chance. So the cause of God and truth has advanced in the world not because people are timid, not because people are fearful, not because people are afraid, 
But as Paul is, is charging Timothy here, he says, you've got to have, uh, you've got to be strong and you've got to stand on truth. And that truth is found in the Bible. So we're not to be afraid of truth. You know, we're talking all about, you know, uh, absolute truth and stuff. And it almost would make you think, well, man, we've got to be really careful where we put our foot down. When we put our foot down where the Bible does, we're on good ground. When we put our foot down that the Bible doesn't speak, we need to be really careful. We need to be really careful about that. So um, now, now here's a caution. I will not say, I'll speak for myself, I will not say that I see the whole truth or that I even see the truth perfectly from the scriptures. I'm not going to say that. Um, I study and I try, and I, but I'm fallible. I'm a sinner. And so I'm not going to claim that I see all truth in the Bible perfectly. At all times, that any subject that I know what the truth of God is about it, and that I, I I wouldn't say that. However, I do I do would stand on this, and I would say because our church even says this, that God has spoken plainly in His Word on all essential things for living and believing as we ought to live. That's what I'll say. I'll say it's in there. I'm not going to tell you that I, in every case, perfectly expound it and perfectly read it and perfectly understand all truth. I don't believe that that's true. <laughs> But God does, and he has put it in the scriptures. And if there's a problem with that, it's on my end, not the Holy Scriptures. Okay? So the same is true of you. If there is something in your life that is an issue for you that you go to the Bible to study, and you don't believe that the answer is there, the problem is with you, not with God's word. And so you just need to ask for more light. You need to pray about that. You need to seek others who can help you study and maybe point you in the right direction. But the problem is not with the scriptures. The problem would be with us. Then on the other hand, God does not call us to be wishy-washy or indecisive, but to have strong confidence in what he has taught us in his word. We're to be confident in the sufficiency of scripture and in the absolute truth that we find therein. So a form of the sufficiency of scripture doctrine, uh, I want to just kind of bring this up as a, as a tag on the end of this section. Um, believe it or not, the 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 doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture has actually been used at times in the history of the church to undermine the truth of the Bible. And you say, wait a minute, what in the world? Okay. How does that work? Well, the strategy of evading biblical truth and what they would say is we only use biblical language. So here's, here's a little exercise for you. Get your phone out right now, pull up your Bible app, pull up your concordance or whatever you got on your phone and put in the word Trinity. Just put in the word Trinity and look up, and so you can find all the verses in the Bible that teach the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? Well, I really appreciate those of you who actually got your phone out. That's really being a good audience participant, but you probably won't have time because I'm about to spoil it. The answer is zero, okay? The, the word is not in the scriptures. Now, do we believe in the concept of the Trinity? Absolutely. Is the concept of the Trinity taught in the Bible? Yes, it is. But the word is not there, okay? So what they would say is, well, if the language itself is not mentioned, then we believe in the sufficiency of the scripture. So if, the, if that word's not there, then you can't use that word. You can't teach that concept. Well, that's false. Um, that's just false. There's a lot of theological words that we use to explain concepts that are taught by the Bible that the word itself might not be there. And that's what makes it difficult, you know? There wouldn't be any denominations if that weren't the truth, right? <laughs> if, it, if it was all laid out so simply and so easily that we all just could read and it's just black and white, then we wouldn't have any disagreements or differences and 
we would all be in, in one church, uh, unified, which ultimately we will be. But now we're not um, because it's difficult to go in and, and to sort those things out. So we're just being honest there and saying that sometimes those things are difficult. We believe that it's inspired and it's inerrant. It's the words of God. But sometimes it's hard for us to interpret and see, and especially on certain areas. So when I said earlier that there's no gray areas, there are. But it's our fault, not the scriptures. <laughs> you know, The scriptures are black and white, and the, and the truth of God is black and white. And there is always an answer. It's just that many times we don't see it, so we have things that we call gray. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. So the sufficiency of scripture means that we don't need any more special revelation. So we don't have to have any more inerrant, inspired words. God has given us what we need to do what we need to do. It is us to study and and to pull that out. So, and the sufficient scripture also doesn't dictate the language that we use to interpret the Bible. Rather, it governs the meaning of the language that we use. So, here's what that means. So if we state a doctrine in a particular way, just because the wording in the way that we state it might be different than the actual wording of the text, it's the meaning that's important. The meaning of the Bible is always true. The, the, the principle of that it teaches is always true. And that in and of itself is why we have difficulty because there are some things that are taught by the Bible by precept, which means it says thou shalt not kill. That's not hard to understand, okay? The Bible says don't kill people. That's, that's, that you just read it and you say, okay, I believe that because the Bible says it. There are then principles that the Bible teaches that are a little harder. So the Bible doesn't say it in black and white, but you have to read a larger passage and say, what's the meaning? What is he actually saying here? What is, what is the apostle teaching or what is the prophet teaching or um, you know, whatever the case might be? So our charge as a church of Jesus Christ is to uphold, protect, teach, and live out the truth of the Bible. And it is very serious business that we ought to take very seriously because we are accountable for how we carry this out. Uh, If we know the truth and do not speak it, teach it, and live it due to the pressures, and I'm I'm just going to say it, due to the pressures of denominational acceptance, due to the pressures of ecclesiastical pressure, due to family pressure, due to any other reason, then we're not living up to the challenge of this exhortation of Paul to Timothy to pass on the truth to the next generation. So I brought up the big elephant in the room, and we're going to deal with it. Our fourth point is what about gray areas? So we have shown from the scriptures that there is an absolute truth. We have shown also then that that absolute truth is found only in the scriptures. So now our fourth point is, well, how do we then respond to issues and questions that are not clearly addressed in the scriptures? So up until this point, all of this sounds pretty simple, right? It sounds simple. Just there is a truth. The Bible is the truth, so just do what the Bible says. Sounds easy enough until an issue comes up and then we begin to study the Bible and we don't see that in black and white and we're trying to take the principles of the Bible and apply it to the situation and that can be very, very difficult and it's done differently and viewed differently by different people, different denominations, um, just a lot of, lot of different views on, on certain items and that what we would call gray areas. So the fourth point is, what about gray areas? Well, I first want to say that these areas should not be the most important to us, okay? 
They should not be the most important to us. If the Bible, if you have to really, really, like you cannot find the answer in the Bible, then that issue ought to be lower on your priority list than the things that the Bible clearly teaches. I think that kind of makes common sense, but I just want to at least bring that up, um, that, that we should be most adamant about those things that the Bible most clearly teaches, okay? Um, that being said, there are inevitably areas that are not directly spelled out in the Scripture that men will have honest disagreements about. So the, the, the easy one to go to is eschatology, okay? The Bible does teach about the end times, okay? We're going through Revelation. We're, we've been talking about Revelations. Well, guess what that teaches us about? It teaches us about the end times, right? So the Bible teaches it, but we also understand as a people, and, and I think even in this church, we would never say, well, if you have that view of the end times, I just can't be your friend. I can't talk to you. We can't sit in the same church because those things are not so clearly laid out that we believe that it's you know a, a, an area that we can just say is clearly the truth of the Bible. So therefore, we have to have a little what, what I would call Christian liberty on that topic so when when that is the case we need to give liberty in those matters Romans 14 let's turn there about just this concept of what what liberty is Romans 14 verse 1 through 6 him that is weak in the faith receive ye but not to doubtful disputations for one believeth that he may eat all things another who is weak eateth herbs let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I think that's really important, by the way. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. So in other words, there's some issues that we can actually do different things, and it's okay. <laughs> there's some that are not. Um, and I... One, this is one area that I really like the way that Mark Dever talks about this. He says, if it's a gospel issue, you need to come to a decision on it. There needs to be some, some clarity of mind and some unity on that to be able to fellowship with people. If it's a non-gospel issue, and that, that's an oversimplification a little bit, but I think it gets you on the right track at least. Um, but there does need to be Christian liberty in truly gray areas. Uh, one important reminder on this topic, though, is that God's silence is a purposeful silence. Did you know that? If we really believe that the scriptures are sufficient, then when God is silent on a matter, that is not by forgetfulness or, you know, I study and I, and I make notes and I try to get my sermon ready for you and I may forget. Well, I forgot that I was going to study that I was going to tell you that. God doesn't forget. God's silence on a matter is a purposeful silence. So if those things are not addressed directly in the scripture, that is not because God forgot to do it or forgot to um, inspire someone to write it down. That means it is the purpose of God because we believe in the sufficiency, inerrancy, and inspiration of scripture. So I, I do want to directly exhort you in one thing concerning this issue, and I wasn't going to include this until last weekend. <laughs> um, there was a 
Primitive Baptist Church that was on the front page of the Tupelo paper. And they interviewed about the church and talked about its history and all of these things. And I'll be honest with you, I was, I was kind of disappointed. It was like, well, everything that was mentioned in that article were distinctives that, to me, were less than important, the really, really important things that Primitive Baptists have stood for through the years. And there was, you know, just the, the way that it was presented. So this is my exhortation on that matter. When you're asked about the church and what it's like or what we believe, how do you answer? Are the things that you say or the distinctives that you mention, are they easily shown to be true by the scriptures? And that's just food for thought. I'm not giving you any specifics. I'm not, I'm not addressing any matter. I'm just saying when that happens, do we focus on those things that are most clear? I mean, we, we stand for some things that are just clearly taught in the scriptures that we ought to be happy to mention and to tell others, hey, this is kind of what makes us a little different. This is, this is where we stand. Um, and I think that's really important, like we said earlier, to stand on those things that are most clearly taught in the scriptures. Now, our last point, and, and we're closing with this. I hadn't even checked the time. Hope I'm not over on the time. This one's a very short but, but needful point. Let's go back to our text there. Second Timothy, at the end of verse 2, he has said that these things and the things that thou hast heard of me, that truth, that absolute truth um, that you've heard, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall, always, who shall be able to teach others also. So our last point is that we have a need for faithful men who are able to teach others. We have a need for faithful men who are able to teach others. So first I'll say let's, let's talk about what it means to be faithful men. What does that mean? What does it mean that, that we say that they need to be faithful men? Faithful to what? Well, what have we been talking about this whole time? <laughs> we need men that will be faithful to the word of God. First and foremost, faithful to the word of God to then share that information with others. Now, is that done in isolation? Absolutely not. So is the, even the, the tenor of this text, is it important even in that way? Absolutely. Because where are those young men going to learn the Holy Scriptures? They're going to learn from older men who are studying the same Holy Scriptures. So when we say, you know, it was different for Timothy, it was because Paul was an apostle and, and they didn't have the canon of Scripture. We do, but that doesn't change the fact that we need older men to then teach younger men and, and bring them along in the Scriptures but what they have to be faithful to is not those older men. They need to be faithful to the scriptures. But they're going to learn those scriptures through the older men who are also faithful to the same scriptures. So both of those things are true in a sense. Now, you know, I was going to turn to, I think it's Matthew 23. I believe that's right. I may have this one wrong. If I don't write references down, they tend not to be remembered correctly. Maybe somebody can help me out if it is the wrong. Matthew 23. It is wrong. Should have wrote it down, but it's where Jesus says that the fields are white to harvest. You need laborers. I just wrote it down incorrectly, and I can't think of the reference off the top of my head. Um, it is it's 23. I had the verses wrong then is, is where it is, but it's in that chapter. I think you're familiar with the passage. 
If somebody comes up with it in a minute, we'll read it directly. But basically, Jesus says, we need laborers for the harvest. And, and we need faithful men who are, is, what is it? He almost had it. That's okay. Um, I'll give it to you after church. See, isn't it interesting that I'm telling you we're only supposed to preach the Bible? And I'm telling you, take my word on it, it's in there. Uh, Matthew 9, okay. Okay, Matthew 9, 37. I'll turn there so we can get that right, get it worded exactly right. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, he says, Then he saith unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And if you go up above that, there's a reason why that, that Jesus was moved to say that. In verse 35, it's because he went about teaching in the cities and the villages and in the synagogues, and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. We need to pray that God will send those shepherds and that God will send faithful men who will then study his word and be faithful to the word of God and faithful also to pass it on to other men, to that next generation and to the next and to the next. Hence the title of this message, which is generational truth. Because it is absolutely true. Did you know that God, I do believe in the perpetuity of the church. I believe in that. But I don't believe in the perpetuity of the Primitive Baptist Church. I believe in the perpetuity of the church. So God does not have to use us to have his truth go forward. But we want, we want to be in the truth. We want to be God's people and we want to be faithful to his word. So we want then faithful men to pass to other faithful men those things that are most surely believed among us, that, that faith that was once delivered to the saints there in Jude, chapter, in, uh, Jude verse 3. That's what we want to teach and preach and stand on. And we need to speak that into the culture uh, because it is um, one of the key aspects of what the church is supposed to do. Hope those things have been a blessing to you.